worship team. Appreciate that. Appreciate that so much. Obviously, um, on a day like today and on a weekend like this weekend, we often say uh, Happy New Year. And I'd like for us to think about what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, as we think about the new year that is upon us and this uh, new year that we celebrate today. And there are two words in this verse, and I want to start here. Obviously, we'll look at a lot of other passages as well, but I want us to think in particular about what our Lord tells us to do in this one verse. And he says, rejoice always. And so if we ask the question, what does God want me to do this year? Uh, He would say, at least in terms of this verse, rejoice always. And yet if we're honest, we would say, uh, that's easier said than done sometimes, right? And yet, the most important thing we can do, I think, this year is to really wrestle with what the Bible says. It actually says, rejoice always. And to pray in light of what we see and to wrestle with the fact that um, the God that created us calls us to rejoice. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? And over the course of this year, on the first Sunday of each month, I plan on talking about that. And I want to start with talking about it today on this New Year's Day. And the reason for that is when you think about the word happy and wishing someone a happy new year, uh, theologically, some people might say, I'm not sure we should say happy new year because I'm not sure if God really wants us to be happy. He wants us to be holy, right? I'm not sure he wants us to be happy. And maybe happiness and joy aren't the same thing. So maybe we should say joyful new year or Are we implying by saying Happy New Year that we don't want you to be sad or mad this year? So maybe we should say Sadless New Year or Madless New Year or something like that. Maybe we should modify that because maybe saying something like Happy New Year isn't really theologically sound. And um, for some of you, that may sound like a little thing, but there are people that really debate those kinds of things. And maybe for good reason, because when we think about how happiness is talked about in our culture, there are some wrong ideas about happiness. And I'm sure even just the word rejoice or be joyful can be something that isn't really entirely clear to us what that really means. And so what I want to talk about today, I want to answer some questions as we think about 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Does God really want us to be happy? Aren't happiness and joy different? Can I be happy as well as sad and mad? Does God command us to be something he's not? And finally, doesn't God want us to be holy, not happy? And so all those questions are things that I've uh, seen people talk about one way or the other in talking about the issue of joy and happiness and those kinds of things. Well, the first question is, does God really want us to be happy? And I believe based on one verse and many other verses too. This verse in particular, Paul says, as a voice of God, uh, rejoice always. And so the answer is yes, God does want us to be happy because he commands us to be happy. The word rejoice there is a command. It's a plural command, which means all of you, I command you to rejoice. Um, And so God commands us to do that. And yet, sometimes that comes across as like the song back in 1988, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Um, If you read through the lyrics of that song, um, there's not much basis for it in terms of on the basis of what am I not to worry and be happy. The only thing he says is if you're if you're having trouble, call me and I'll make you happy as if a man uh, could do something like that. But he talks about if you lose your bed or other bad things happen, don't make it doubly trouble, <laughs> double trouble by adding worry to it. Just don't worry and be happy. And that actually was the song of the year. 
It is also the children's song of the year. Don't worry, be happy. And I think some people read Rejoice Always like they hear Don't Worry, Be Happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's easier said than done. And the reason why it can be a yeah, yeah, yeah kind of thing is because, like in the song, there's no real basis for not worrying and just being happy, at least in many people's minds. It seems like there's many reasons to worry and many reasons not to be happy. And so our Lord and our Father has a plethora of reasons to say, Rejoice always. And we just have to uh, be diligent to look at what he has to say about that. But it's the enemy of our soul's strategy to call into question whether or not God really wants us to be happy in terms that we would call happy. Uh, The very first temptation, you recall, was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan comes to them in the form of a serpent, and he tempts them and basically calls into question God's word. And uh, it says that he said, God knows that in the day you eat from it, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Implying God has something that he's keeping from you. And it's really important for you to have the very thing that he's keeping from you. And so it goes on to say, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit, or its fruit, and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. It says, when she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. In the ancient world, wisdom was very much about the path to the good life. And ultimately, the path to happiness. Because the good life was the path to happiness in terms of the ancient philosophers. The word philosophy means love of wisdom. And so why did people love wisdom? Because they connected wisdom with true happiness. That was the connection, I believe, that was being made there as well. This tree is desirable to make me wise. Therefore, it's desirable to help me see what the good path is to the happiness that my heart longs for. And so instead of obeying God, I'll disobey God because it it is the path to happiness. And so from the very beginning, Satan has tempted us to think that God is commanding our misery, or at least our lack of happiness, and keeping us from what will truly make us happy. In fact, when Jesus came, obviously he came, it says in the New Testament, to reveal the heart of the Father. And so the first temptation was, I believe, about wisdom and happiness. The first miracle that Jesus did, it says in John chapter 2, is that he went to a wedding. And at the wedding they ran out of wine, which was a huge deal in that culture, to run out of food and wine in a situation like that. And Jesus comes in and he turns water into wine. And it says at the end of that, that they recognize that the water that he turned into wine was the very best of wines. And it says, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, obviously, many times in the Bible, glory refers to power. Obviously, it did manifest his power to turn water into wine. But in the Old Testament, it highlights the fact that when Moses says, show me your glory, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And so what did Jesus manifest? He manifested his, not only his power, but his goodness and his power to make us happy. Wine in the Old Testament was often a picture of joy and happiness that's why it says in Zechariah 10 Ephraim will be like a mighty man and their heart will be glad as if from wine indeed their children will see it and be glad their heart will rejoice in the Lord and so Jesus wanted us to see his whole ministry as being about bringing us joy 
I think that's the implication of his very first miracle. And this is, and I think the reason for that is he came to reveal the goodness of God. He indeed came to reveal God as love. If you read 1 John, written by the Apostle John, he says there are two things that we saw very clearly through the ministry of Jesus. God is light and God is love. God is light means he's perfect, holy, righteous, without sin. Excuse me. God is love, obviously, excuse me, means that he loves perfectly. But how many of you have ever heard a parent say to a child, I just want you to be happy? I've heard that before. Now, depending on how you define happiness, that may be a good thing or a bad thing. But the implication behind it or the spirit of it is really a good thing. What person loves another person and doesn't want them to be happy? Can you love someone and not care about their true happiness? You may be messed up in terms of what that looks like. But can you love someone and not want them to be happy? I would say no, you can't love them. Now, they may not always feel loved and they may not always feel like you're pursuing their happiness when you tell them no. Like a little child, if you thwart their will, they may not think you love them. They may not think you want them to be happy because what you're doing makes them sad at the moment. But it says in Hebrews, all... um, Trial, suffering, discipline uh, bring sadness at the moment, but in the end, it bears the fruit of righteousness, which ultimately bears the fruit of joy. And so, if we say that God is love, then and that He loves us, that means He He wants us to be truly happy. He is not out to make us miserable, and that is such an important thing because. The enemy of our souls will whisper that in various ways. And like Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. And therefore, uh, anything that says God's not really pursuing your happiness by what he's telling you to do is going to undermine our trust in God and our pursuit of God. It's interesting. There are a lot of scriptures that talk along these same lines. Um, in 1 Thessalonians itself, in verse 18, if you read 16, 17, and 18, many people will put those three verses together. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for you? Well, many will lump all three together. It's God's will that you rejoice always. It's God's will that you pray without ceasing. It's God's will that you give thanks in everything. And ultimately, it's because God's will that you're giving thanks for has been played out in your life. So there's a sense in which there's the will that God commands and there's the will of God's decree. We give thanks based on what he's decreed, but we also give thanks based on his command. And so either way you look at it, it is what God uh, commands he commands us to be happy in that sense in psalm 100 verse 2 it says serve the lord with gladness come before him with joyful singing psalm 37 4 says delight yourself in the lord be happy in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart in isaiah 55 2 god says why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy listen carefully to me And eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So the Bible uses different words for what I would call happiness, true happiness in God. Sometimes it speaks of joy. Sometimes it speaks of gladness. Sometimes it speaks of delight. Delight yourself. Make yourself happy in what I provide, the Lord says. Indeed, in Nehemiah 8.10, it says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The happiness of the Lord is your strength. It's it's what's going to carry you through your sorrows. You need a happiness in the Lord to carry you through your sorrows. Paul talks about um, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 
He doesn't see those two things as being mutually exclusive. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. So is the gospel that we talk about something other than the good news of happiness in God through Jesus. No, that is the good news. It's happiness in God through Jesus. Augustine again said, If I were to ask you why you have believed in Christ, why you have become Christians, every man will answer truly for the sake of happiness. Augustine was one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. And he would put it simply as, You became a Christian, you trusted Christ, obviously by grace, God's gracious work in your life, but there was a motivation. And he says the motivation that resulted from God's gracious work in your life was you saw Jesus as the key to happiness in God. And that's why you gave your life to Christ. Nobody comes to God through Jesus to be miserable. Nobody comes to God through Jesus thinking that their life will be worse off. We come to God through Jesus because we believe we will be much, much better off. That whatever we might have to lose or lay aside will be nothing compared to what we gain. That's why we come to Christ. And it's because of faith. We see that God is the great treasure that will satisfy our souls. And so, does God really want us to be happy? Yes, he does. And yet, that belief, that trust will be challenged every day in various ways because that's been the enemy's tactic from the very beginning. Secondly, aren't happiness and joy different? And like I said, a lot of people don't like the word happy. Um, I'm okay with using the word happy because I've, I see a lot of Puritans use the word happy and I see Augustine and other people use the word happy, so I'm not, if they use the word happy, I think I can. But the question is, why would they not see joy and happiness as being strictly different or exclusive like a lot of people do? Uh, so I want to talk about that just a little bit. Um, but if you look at different translations of 1 Thessalonians 5.16, there are some translations that will translate um, this verse, instead of translating it, rejoice always, they will translate it, always be happy, or always be joyful. And even one translation says, be happy in your faith at all times. Um, there's one um, gentleman that was a part of Coast many, many years ago, and I remember having a conversation with him, and we were talking about this issue of joy and happiness and that sort of thing, and uh, what kind of kind of came out of the conversation was I realized that all of us uh, sometimes may uh, have this sneaky suspicion that what God calls joy and happiness isn't really what I would call joy and happiness. That he wants me to give up my idea of joy and happiness and just kind of embrace his idea of joy and happiness. And that in the, in the end, he keeps his word, but I don't, I get the short end of the stick. Yeah, he gave me the joy and happiness that he wanted, but maybe it really wasn't real joy and happiness, as I would define it, that it was much less than that. And it obviously is something that is the temptation of those who, for all of us in our sinful condition, doubt the goodness of God, that maybe it's a bait and switch. What he's calling joy is what I would call misery. What he's calling happiness is what I would call slavery and labor and burden. So maybe it's all semantics. That the reason why people are running the other way, away from God, is because God is talking about joy and happiness and all these things, but uh, they know that's not really what he's talking about. It's, a, it's really just an illusion. That he's really not promising what will truly make me happy. And part of the reason for that is we tend to define happiness in terms of circumstances because we think of happiness in terms of what happens, right? Um, I'm happy when what happens is pleasing to me. 
And people will look at Job in the Old Testament and say, how could God want Job to be happy? He suffered so much. Look at the Apostle Paul. How could God want the Apostle Paul to be happy? Because he was beaten and stoned and suffered so much. What happened to him doesn't match my definition of happiness. And so maybe God isn't really concerned about our circumstances. Maybe his definition of happiness is really not my definition of happiness. Um, Well, let me just make some distinctions here real quick. We, We do need to recognize that happiness is not just a feeling. It's not doing what you want. It's not simply having fun and pleasure. But neither is happiness an illusion. There are some people who look at life and they look at the suffering of life and say, you know, happiness is just an illusion. It's really not real. Somebody has said happiness is an imaginary condition formerly attributed by the living to the dead and now usually attributed by adults to children and by children to adults. So we look around us and we think uh, either happiness isn't a real thing or it's something that someone else has and I don't. And it all depends on how we determine what happiness is. Like I mentioned earlier, for the ancients, uh, for the philosophers, the Greek philosophers and others like uh, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, and those guys, um, they saw um, happiness as being connected to the good life and consistent with objective reality and consistent with fulfilling our purpose and all, all those kinds of features. And that is closer to, to what the Bible says than what most people think about in our day and time, whereas happiness is about fun. Happiness is about pleasure. Happiness is, is uh, just a feeling. Uh, when they saw it as more in terms of your life conforming to an objective reality, that's closer to what the Bible says, but it's not there because there's nothing in their philosophy about the true God and about Jesus and our need for him. But what the Bible does say in various ways, is that happiness is about the enjoyment of a person by becoming more like him. And the Bible says that in a number of different ways. And so to rejoice is to remember is to remember God and his love and his promises to us in Jesus so that we are glad and happy at all times and seasons. There's a verse in Isaiah 64 that says, You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways, so that rejoicing and remembering go together. So there are things that I need to remember that are true in order to to rejoice. There has to be a basis for it. And that remembering centers upon God. And it centers upon what he's done and what he promises me and what he will do. But it's at its heart is very much a remembering God. And so when God calls us to be happy, he does want it to be based on what has happened to us and what is happening to us. But the things we're supposed to look at in terms of what has happened to us, what is happening to us, are not simply things we can see. Now, should I be happy about the fact that God has been good to me in ways that I can see? Whether it's providing me food and clothing and shelter, giving me a wife and children and good health and a job and all those things, yes, that should be a part of the picture. But what if those things go away this year? What if I lose my job? What if someone does pass away in my family? Um, should all my happiness go away? No, it shouldn't, because for the most part, my happiness has to be rooted in what you might say are my real circumstances. What are my real circumstances? My real circumstances have to do with my relationship to God, which does not change. It's an unchanging set of facts that if I'm in Jesus, if I'm trusting in Jesus, my relationship with Jesus will not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Now, in terms of temporal things, those things may change. And it's not wrong to find happiness in temporal things. But my rootedness needs to be in things that are not temporal. You have to be not in things that are seen, but in things that are unseen. And God is the biggest thing, so to speak, or biggest person who is unseen. We can't see him, but my joy is to be rooted in things that are not seen. It's interesting, um, Jonah, you remember the story of Jonah? Jonah, um, at the end of the book in chapter 4, is displeased with God because of circumstances. He's angry at God because he wanted God to punish Nineveh. He wanted God to judge Nineveh and, and Jonah preaches and they repent. And so God says, I'm not going to punish them like I said I was. And and Jonah is upset. He's unhappy with God. But God sends a plant that grows up overnight and provides some wonderful shade for Jonah. And the Bible says that uh, Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Then the next day, God sends a worm and the plant dies. And Jonah is immediately unhappy again. The question is, what is going on there? Who is Jonah really unhappy with? He's unhappy with God. Because we all know God's sovereign. We all know God's in charge. And the book of Jonah just makes it perfectly clear that God's very much in charge of our circumstances. And so... In order to be happy, even in difficult circumstances, we have to be happy with the God behind those circumstances. Otherwise, our circumstances will betray the fact that we're really not happy with the God behind the circumstances. And that's why the Bible calls us to rejoice always and and everything give thanks because everything that happens to us tests our faith. It tests our view of God and whether or not we believe he loves us and is at work to make us truly happy, even if it means temporary grief and sorrow. What is he really up to? And so that's why James could say, James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, should I be happy about sin, people sinning against me in and of itself? No. Should I be happy about losses that I, that I incur in and of themselves? No. But am I to consider it joy in the sense that the purpose that God has in mind is to bring me joy? And to bring others joy through my life. That he has a good purpose in it. In this case, it will produce endurance. But it's going to produce something good. And ultimately, it's going to produce joy in God. And so, it's a test of faith. So that my circumstances have to be understood through the lens of faith. Through the lens that God is loving me. And that means he is pursuing my true and lasting happiness. And that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so he says, in order not to lose heart and to continue rejoicing, that's what he means in context is, in order for us to continue rejoicing, not lose heart, I have to look beyond simply what I see to what is unseen. Again, Augustine said, Thou made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. It's talking about God. God is unseen. My happiness has to be rooted in what is unseen. But also believe that the unseen is in control of the seen. And that what is unseen is actually shaping all that takes place in my life. And that therefore I can trust God 
with the seen because of what I know about the unseen God and his unseen promises and his unseen work behind the scenes. Well, the third question is, and I better move on for the sake of time, is can I be happy as well as sad and mad? Um, Which is a great, great question. And the answer is yes, when both the sadness and madness are appropriate responses to suffering and sin. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, there's an inclusiveness about rejoice. It's a plural verb, you all rejoice. Nobody's left out. So everyone in the church there in Thessalonica is commanded by God, and all of us as Christians are commanded by God to rejoice. But it's also very extensive in the sense that he says, always. That could be translated all the time. And so uh, all of you, all the time, are to rejoice. And always is actually at the head of the sentence in Greek. And that typically means it's being emphasized all the time, rejoice. Not just some of the time, not just occasionally, but all the time. And some might hear that as, well, that must mean I can never be sad and I can never be mad. But that would be a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying there. Because if you look at the greater context, and we could have read chapter 4 and chapter 5, but let me just highlight some things from chapter 4 and chapter 5. In verse 13 of chapter 4, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. So he says, You should grieve those who've died. Just don't grieve as if there is no hope for them or for you. Like there's no hope for you to see them again, no hope for them to be a part of uh, God's coming kingdom. So there's a real grief, but it's to be a grief that still has hope, and therefore it has rejoicing in it. Um, In verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So the context is, the return of Christ. And what about those believers that have already died? Will they miss out on the return of Christ and all that God's going to do at that point? And Paul says, no, they're not going to miss out. And so you can grieve them and the loss of them in this life, but don't grieve as those who have no hope. There should be a joy even in your grief because of the real circumstances of the situation. Then in verse 15, the verse right before verse 16, obviously, Paul says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Which means that our rejoicing is going to be in the context of people doing evil things. People sinning against us. And yet Paul says, even in the face of people sinning against you, doing evil to you, rejoice. Don't stop rejoicing because of that. And yet, does that mean I should be okay with sin? No. I should never be okay with sin, not my sin or anyone else's sin. That doesn't mean that I can't still have a joy in the Lord that transcends those situations. That's what Paul is saying. And the key to that, I believe, is verse 17, which follows verse 16, when he says, pray without ceasing. Because the temptation to stop rejoicing is often in the context of evil and suffering. People are hurting me. People are sinning against me. How can I continue to rejoice Well, it's only as we realize that my real circumstances transcend those circumstances. That, like James says, consider it all joy. That God is up to good things even when we suffer, even when people sin against us. And that's why Paul could say, don't return evil for evil. Don't return evil for evil. Uh, Do them good. Love them in return. Because God is going to actually bless you through that. And so verse 18 says, And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, knowing that that God in his good providence is going to 
turn everything for our good. Um, so the context makes it clear that you can have a mixture of emotions. You can be sad. You can be legitimately mad at sin. Um, We read a book in a small group last year, um, Good and Angry. And it made the point that if God can be good and angry, then if we're being made into his image, we will be good and angry. There are things that we ought to be angry about. If I'm not angry about some of the things that are going on in our country, then I'm not loving as I should be. fact is, God is angry, but he's perfect love. But he's angry at people hurting people and people uh, doing evil to people. That does not, he's not indifferent to that. He's not like a stoic who says, I'm just going to be indifferent to what's happening around me. God is not indifferent, and yet he has a joy that he calls us to. And so we see, for instance, in John chapter 11, where um, Lazarus dies. And at the beginning, Jesus hears about him dying. And he says, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. I'm happy that I wasn't there. But then he gets there and it says, Jesus wept. So he was both happy and and sad about the same circumstance. Um, If you think about what happened in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is uh, teaching, and there's a man in the the synagogue there who has a withered hand. And Jesus asks the religious leaders, is it lawful to, to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? And they don't answer him. And it says, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he heals the man. What do you think happened when Jesus healed the man? Do you think there was this scowl on his face because he just kept looking around at all the people who were so hard-hearted? I don't think so. Um, it tells us in Isaiah chapter 9, talking about the ministry of Jesus. One day it says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. What do you think that man did when he was healed? You just say, hmm, oh well. I bet he shouted with joy. Yes! Thank you, thank you, thank you! You think Jesus said, you're welcome. I think he said, you're welcome! Or something like that. His response would have been just as enthusiastic, just as joyful as the man who was responding to it. Why? Because it's lawful to do good. It's his joy to do what's good. And so... Yes, he could look around at the hard-hearted people who did not want him to heal that man and be appropriately grieved and angered by that and still rejoice with that man and have a smile on his face and shout with him, praise God for your healing. That's the way God is. Jesus came to reveal God. And I believe the Bible shows us that, yes, there, there are times when we should be appropriately sad and there are times when we should be appropriately mad because of suffering and because of sin. And yet we should always rejoice. That's why Paul says in Second Corinthians, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so it's important that we realize that. In fact, Psalm 31 is a psalm in which you can see all these things brought together in an interesting way. Psalm 31, verse 6 through 9 says, the psalmist says, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul 
and you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. Now you could read the rest of the psalm, but just think about the things that are meshed together in that one set of verses. He says, I hate, I trust, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness. He talks about his affliction. He talks about his troubles. He talks about his enemies. He says, I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. And there doesn't appear to be any conflict or contradiction there. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness while I hate those who regard vain idols, while I am in distress. I'm mad about sin. I'm sad about my loss, but I rejoice in your loving kindness because that is the real circumstance that trans... um, that a trans um, is higher than all my other all my other circumstances. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, "God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from Himself, because it is not there. There is no such thing." And so, think about that. What is God's response to a fallen world? He is a God who rejoices. But yet he is grieved by things and he is angry by things. We should not be surprised if he calls us to be like him in such a way that we rejoice always. But we are appropriately mad at some things and appropriately sad about some things as well. The fourth question is, does God command us to be something he's not? And all that I said kind of leads into this question. And the answer is no, he he. He is happy and he commands our happiness because he is. And we see this reflected in the scripture in in different ways. Luke 15 talks about joy in heaven. It talks about when sinners are saved. It says in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And you might ask the question, well, isn't that just talking about the angels? Aren't they all rejoicing? Is God sitting up there with his arms crossed? Not rejoicing? No, the implication is the angels are rejoicing because God's rejoicing. The angels are conforming to God. Heaven conforms to God. So there's joy in heaven because God's joyful in heaven. In fact, in John 15, Jesus says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The reason why God saves us is so that we can be happy like he is, so that we can have his joy, Jesus says. That's why I came. That's why I've told you what I've told you. That's why I've commanded you the way I've commanded you, because I want you to have my joy. My joy is full. My joy is lasting. My happiness is everything that your heart longs for. Your joy is temporal and it's temporary and it's, it's fleeting. It's just fun and pleasure that doesn't last. But my joy is really what I want you to have. In Psalm 1611, it says, speaking of God, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Why should we think that God doesn't want us to have pleasure when in his right hand there are pleasures that will never end? Why should we think that God really doesn't want us to be as happy as we can be when it says in his presence is fullness of joy? God is very much concerned about pleasures and joy. But in his presence that we might partake of the things that bring him delight and pleasure and joy, his joy, the only joy that will satisfy us. You know, if we ask the question, how do we often define happiness? We often define it as doing and being whatever I want. That's the way our culture would define happiness in this day and time. Doing whatever I want to do, being whatever I want to be. The only person that's true of is God. God is fully happy because he is 
whatever he wants to be and he does whatever he wants to do. That's why it says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. Or in Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. And why is that an okay thing? Because he's perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly wise. And so for him to do whatever he wants to do, his happiness is never thwarted. He's as happy as he could be. And the good thing is, he will never do anything wrong in pursuing his happiness. But for us as fallen creatures, when we adopt that attitude, I'll do whatever I want to do to be happy, I'll be whatever I want to be to be happy, then we actually end up being evil. Because we're sinful, we're fallen, and we cannot live that way. We were created to do whatever God wants us to do and to be whatever God wants us to be. That's how we pursue our happiness. It seems like a very simple statement, but it will radically change our lives if we embrace that every day, that I pursue my happiness by seeking to do what God wants me to do and to be what God wants me to be. And so there's so much more that can be said about that. But let me just um, remind you of something that um, John Calvin said in his gospel. He said, Gospel of John, he said, God expressly bestows the name gospel on the message which he orders to be proclaimed concerning Christ. For thus he reminds us that nowhere else can true and solid happiness be obtained and that in him we have all that is necessary for the perfection of a happy life. So Calvin said, if you want true happiness and solid happiness, embrace the gospel. Seek to uh, trust God for that happiness. Which brings us to the last point or last question. Uh, Doesn't God want us to be holy and not happy? And the answer is, no, God wants us to be holy and happy, both. Because the implication is, um, if I pursue holiness, I may not be happy. And I just have to be okay with that. Bible never says that. Bible never says, embrace holiness because it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. But the Bible always also says, but it, it is also the way to true happiness. And God's wired us to pursue our happiness. So many people justify, and all of us naturally justify our sin, just like Joe Theismann, I mentioned him before. He cheated on his second wife, and his justification for that was God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. There was partial truth in that. God does want us to be happy as his creatures because he's a loving God. But rejecting what God says and disobeying God isn't the path to happiness. And to do what he did clearly violated God's word. And so, yes, God wants us to be happy, but we have to understand that God isn't only happy, he's also holy. And therefore, for us to be happy like he is and to have his joy, we have to be holy like he is. And that's why the Bible calls us to holiness in all kinds of ways, to trust God's word and to love like God calls us to love. Um, Let me just wrap up by asking this question. Does happiness just happen? It doesn't just happen. On the one hand, happiness is a gift. On the other hand, it's something we pursue. Why? Because ultimately, happiness flows from our faith. Paul talks about the joy of faith. So ultimately, my happiness depends on whether or not I am trusting God's word and seeking to live out God's word. And therefore, faith is a gift from God, but it's also something that I am to pursue. So happiness is a gift from God and something that I am to pursue. And so my encouragement for us this year is just to think about whether or not you've embraced the fact that you're going to pursue your happiness this year one way or the other.
Just ask yourself the question, am I going to pursue it in the way that God wants me to pursue it? Am I going to pursue it by seeking to trust him more, trust his promises more, trust his word more? Am I going to seek it by seeking to love more like he commands me to in the Bible? Am I going to pursue happiness in God through greater trust and greater love? Jonathan Edwards, when he was uh, relatively young, came up with a whole list of resolutions. And number 22 was this. Resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. So what was Jonathan's, Jonathan Edwards' resolution? At least one of them was to pr- pursue happiness with all my heart, to run after happiness as hard as I can. And my encouragement for all of us, myself included this year, is to pray for grace, to run hard after happiness. Not the happiness in the things of this world, but happiness in God. And therefore, to run hard after greater trust in God's word and greater love in light of what God's word says. And so as you think about your resolutions for this year, ask yourself, what, what are my resolutions for this new year? Am I resolved to be more happy? Am I resolved to be more happy in God? And therefore, am I resolved to pursue greater trust in God's word? Am I resolved to pursue greater love in light of what God commands me to? Am I resolved to rejoice always, whether I'm appropriately mad or appropriately sad? And do I realize that that can only happen, those things can only happen if I'm trusting in Jesus, if I'm resting in Jesus for my righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you'd help us as we think about this new year, as we think about new resolutions, new commitments, new goals. We do pray that our goal would be to be happy, more happy, to rejoice more, to rejoice always in every circumstance, indeed to find our happiness in greater, deeper ways in you, and therefore to pursue greater holiness, greater trust in your word, greater love in light of what you call us to and command us in your word. We do pray for greater faith and greater joy as a gift from you. We pray for grace to pursue with all of our hearts our happiness in you, that you might be glorified, that we might be more trusting and more loving, and that others might find joy in you this year through our lives as well. Please encourage us. Please help us. Please lead us as we think about this new year and think about how you've commanded us to rejoice always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.